Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The odds that you will ever find yourself in the middle of a snowstorm in Miami, Florida are slim to none. Those are the same odds that young Sean Swarner had to survive when he was diagnosed with terminal cancer twice. He survived and wanted to seize the life that he was lucky to still have. Since then, he has climbed the highest peaks on all seven continents, among other feats, while only having one lung. We are talking to him today about the grueling environments he was subjected to while pushing the human body to impossible limits. Sean, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. That's a great intro. Grateful to be here. Yeah, it's just an awesome intro. I, I feel very much like an underachiever <laughs> already. Uh, so it's really great to talk to you. I've, I've heard about you. I've, I've actually read stories about you. So it's an honor to have you. Now, this is Weather Geeks, and we're going to talk about many things in your life and your career. But any special sort of stories or connections to weather from your past? Are you a hidden weather geek? <laughs> you know, I I have been fortunate to, like like you said, to travel around the world. and. I, I don't know the typical or the uh, the the the, um, the name for it, but there was I want to oh it, I th- it just came to me I think it's called a parhelion. Oh wow! Yes. Yeah, that's the it. Optical f- phenomena in the atmosphere. Yes. So I was in Antarctica. I was on a, an expedition skiing to the South Pole, and this the wind was blowing just enough that the sun was refracting all of the um, uh, the light. And it, I, there were probably one, two, three, four, five, six different points. It, it seriously looked like an eyeball in the sky looking at us. Absolutely. It, was, it, was, it was absolutely beautiful. Yeah, no, it's it actually the, the perihelion, the sun dogs, yes. uh, the arcs. And I mean, there, there are certainly some uh, images that I've seen out on Twitter and Internet that have the full range of what we call atmospheric optical phenomena that we see. And so it's certainly something that I teach about in some of my classes. So I'm, I'm, you definitely have been inducted to weather geekdom here by being able to pull that one. I'm impressed. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about about your upbringing, John. Now, I believe you're from Ohio. Um, what what was your upbringing like, and sort of how did you get to a point? Did you know that you were an adventurer, or did this kind of come about later in your life? Oh, I I was your typical Midwest boy. You know, grew grew up in a little town called Willard, Ohio. Uh, population five thousand people. I I think. I think we had maybe five stoplights, and I'm pretty sure the town still has five stoplights. <laughs> so. <laughs> really tiny and my backyard was was a bean field or a corn field depending on the season uh yeah. you know, I, I grew up with the midwest ethics uh, the morals and everything else that were instilled in me and i i was i was i was incredibly normal in fact i remember um i was probably seven or eight years old um you, you know I'm, I'm, let me ask you a question when you were younger you, you probably built forts right you remember oh, absolutely. how absolutely you, you, you you would take the uh, the bed sheet and put it on the back of the two ends of the chairs. I I was such an adventurer even back then. I I made a blueprint for an underground fortress. Wow! 
And I, I had a complete built out of concrete. I had a little, I designed a little trap door where I was going to put grass and a snorkel so I could breathe. And I wanted to dig a hole in the ground to build this. I, I never did it. Obviously, you know, dad, and mom put a kibosh on that. They're like, no, you're not going to dig in our backyard. <laughs> so I was always getting into trouble just like everybody else. But I think what that meant was I, I learned to, uh, I learned how to get away with things and how not to get caught. Yeah. Sounds right. like, sounds like a lot of our experiences as right. <laughs> boys. I, and I have a 13 year old, so I can certainly relate to that right now, particularly as we are taping this within the pandemic. Now, you know, I, I mentioned this uh, early in the intro, you survived two different forms of cancer during your teen years. And in one of your bouts, your battles there, you lost the lung. I, I think it was four stage Hodgkin's, Hodgkin's disease and Askin's sarcoma. Uh, and again, uh, you know, Congratulations on that. It's a testament to who you are and your fortitude as well, and certainly also to your the great medical care that I'm sure you received as well. Um, now, at that point, what was the what was the, the the sort of light switch for you that said, "Okay, I want to go climb every peak in every continent"? I mean, was it a gradual thing, or was it just okay? I got to go do this. You know, it it was kind of both. Um, I, I went to college, you know, after everything was, was all said and done, um, with the second cancer, which was the Askins, they actually gave me a prognosis of 14 days. So I was only given 14 days to live. Wow. Are you and serious? Wow. Seriously. And, and I remember being 16 years old, looking down at my feet where there was a man on the cloth reading me my last rites. So I was, I was read my last rites. And I remember looking to, looking over to, at my mom and my dad. Um, kind of tongue in cheek saying, you know, it, because the hospital wanted me to write out a living will as well. And I looked at them kind of, like I said, kind of tongue in cheek. And I was like, well, what's the hospital want? Because my younger brother is going to get all my hand-me-downs anyhow. So, <laughs> and then I went to college. I turned to, into Belushi from Animal House. I had a wonderful time in college. I, I kind of relived my high school years. Where'd you, where'd you go in, to college? Just curious. All our Weather Geeks listeners always like to know that kind of stuff. Oh, I, I went to Westminster College in Pennsylvania, yeah. small okay. liberal arts school. But then kind of closer to you, I went down to uh, Jacksonville, Florida, to University of North Florida. Oh, that's so, where my wife went. She's an, oh, old, nice. she's an osprey. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was down there working on my, my master's and my doctorate on counseling psychology. I was going nice. to be a psychologist for cancer patients. Oh, wow. Nice. So you, so you, and I actually have, so I believe uh, Westminster, I feel like my daughter has received a couple of letters. She's a volleyball player. So I'm actually familiar with both of those universities. Now, let me just orient the listener here to some of the things that you've done, because as we're sitting here sort of feeling sorry for ourselves because we're stuck in the house, we're dealing with coronavirus. Let me just talk about some of the things that you've done so that we can all up Ourselves and perhaps have a different perspective on things. So you've climbed the highest peaks on all seven continents, the first cancer survivor to climb Everest and complete all seven summits. You skied to the North and South Poles. Uh, the North Pole trek was actually the subject of the PBS documentary, True North, the Sean Swarner story. You completed a Hawaiian Ironman triathlon and voted one of the top eight most inspirational people of all time. And oh, by the way, you founded a nonprofit called the Cancer Climate Association and, and authored several books. Okay, after I took a breath <laughs> from reading all of that, first of all, let me just commend you, and that's awesome. But I want to dig a little deeper here because this is Weather Geeks, and I, I, I want to kind of touch base. Tell us what it was like 
you know, skiing the poles? Oh, wow. Um, well, the, the, the South Pole, it, it was easier than the North Pole because going down to Antarctica, you know, it's a continent. And underneath you know, the mile thick sheet of ice, there's actually land. So the, 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 the ice isn't moving so much. Um, and one of the things that, that boggled my mind too was because, the, because of the tilt of the earth. You know, we went down there, we were in January, so it's, it's their summertime. And because the sun just does a constant halo in the sky, there's no difference between 2 a.m. And, and 2 p.m. It's, it's the same. And because of that, and because of how long the heat's up, and because of the intense radiation and, and the lack of the ozone down there, on one side of the tent, uh, you know, we're, we're, there are three of us in a tent. Um, my head's up this way, the guy in between, his head's down by my feet, and the other head's of the guys up, up by me too. On one side of the tent where the sun is, it's literally 80 degrees. Six and six feet to my right, you know, where the where the sun isn't, he's in the shade. It's about twenty. Wow. So in in you know six and a half feet, it goes from eighty to twenty degrees. That blew my mind. That's a um, serious. In the meteorology world, we would call that a temperature gradient, and that's a serious. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely huge. And the and the North Pole was unique in the aspect that a lot of people don't understand that the world. If you kind of look at the world as a uh, a glass of of ice water, you know the the glacier on on the the polar ice cap is kind of like the ice cubes floating on top of of the world. And a lot of people don't realize that there are currents flowing underneath. And there were a couple times where we actually skied five miles north and in the middle of the night, because of the current changing, we actually floated two miles backwards. Wow. So we, we technically, even though we went five or six miles, we only went four. Wow. Because we wow. were moved back. And you were kind of moving, you were sort of mo making progress but like a treadmill then moving back. Exactly, exactly. And, and there were times when you could hear the ice because the, uh, like the glacier in, in Antarctica is much slower. Up there, things are moving a lot faster. And you can hear these giant plates of ice scraping by one another and popping and grinding in the middle of the sleep. And you can feel it reverberating through the ice on, while you're sleeping and laying on the ground. Now, while while you were up there in the North Pole or in the in the, the Northern Arctic, uh, any sightings of any interesting wildlife, polar bears, et cetera? Well, we uh, we did we didn't see any animals, but we did see Arctic fox tracks yes. in the snow. Yes. And then our brains start thinking, well, what does what does the Arctic fox eat? And we're like, we're thinking, well, he probably eats polar bear leftovers. Right. So we hopped on the satellite phone. Every, every night we call into uh, the local, uh, uh, the temporary camp that's run by the Russians up there. And we just call and say, hey, we're all still alive. Everything's okay. And every once in a while, they'll patrol via helicopter. And they let us know that we actually had two polar bears tracking us. Oh, tracking you. Wow. <laughs> yes. Nice. Or not so nice in the case of had they kind of decided to kind of move in. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking with Sean Swarner, a mountain climber and cancer survivor about surviving on top of the world. Uh, did you in your polar treks, was there what did you consult anyone prior to your mission or to your uh, skiing on the weather? I mean, what, what was your weather sort of preparation like for these? Or was it just, okay, let's head out. We know it's cold and icy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I live in Colorado and, and we, we live by uh, the layering effect. You know, you, you did put on different layers and it's, it's so incredibly difficult to really prepare for that. 
I mean, let, let me just put it bluntly. If if you sweat, like if, if you start working up a sweat in cold temperatures, it was 80 below, just so you know. So in 80 below temperatures, if you if you build up a sweat and you, your, your sweat starts to go onto, onto your clothing, it could literally freeze and you would die. So yeah. in, in any situation like that, the best thing to do is stay dry, right. not try to get sweat, not to try to get sweaty. And the, it's also very difficult to, to keep your hands from getting, you know, if, if you just close your palms, the moisture builds up in there. So you, you have to really be aware of that. You have to be very mindful of almost absolutely everything you do. So you, you really can't plan for the weather. You just kind of wake up in the morning and look outside and say, yep, it's snowy, or yep, it's sunny, or yep, yeah, this is what it's gonna be like today. And it can change in an instant. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm talking with Sean Swarner. And his story is amazing. I kind of, at the beginning of the podcast, introduced some of the things that he has done. Uh, I want to now pivot to your mountain climbing, because you've summited on every continent. Okay. Now, you know, I'm guessing, I mean, well, I want to, well, let me just get your answer. What was the most difficult summit? You know, a lot of people think Everest would have been the most difficult. I, I summited Everest on my first attempt. The weather was just absolutely perfect. It was like a slight breeze at the summit, and the, and the sun was out. It was beautiful. Um, the most difficult mountain was Denali up really? in Alaska. It, yeah, it took me three attempts to get up there. The first time I fell 100 feet. Uh, the second time we started running out of food. We actually had more snow in two nights than the entire Alaska range did the, the whole winter. So is that what is, is the snow aspect is what made it so difficult? Believe it or not, what made Denali most difficult was the snow aspect and, and ironically the weather. Yeah, yeah, and 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 again, just for our listeners here, I'm I'm trying to kind of go through my memory banks to kind of get the difference in um, elevation of say Everest versus Denali. I mean, Everest is up in the what mid upper twenties. Exactly. Yeah. Everest is at 29,000 feet. So yep. it's pretty much at where an altitude where jumbo jets level off and fly. And, and Denali's what's what? 16? 20. 20. Oh, it is 20. Okay. So it's, it's nothing to sneeze at for sure. Um, but that's interesting that you say what now, what time of year would you have been climbing in Denali and in, in Everest respectively? You know, it's it's kind of funny you mentioned that because I just looked at my phone to see what. First of all, I don't even know what day it is anymore. No, um, same, same. <laughs> totally, totally with you there. But I, I just looked. It's it, it's May thirteenth. I summited. Um, I got to Everest Base Camp April eighth and summited May sixteenth. Wow! So in three days will be the anniversary. Um, and I summited um, Denali finally in June. Oh wow! Oh, oh, in June of last year. No, no, of, in June of, uh, I want to say 2008 or nine. Oh, okay. So it's, it's been a while. Okay. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Because that, that's where I was going with my line of questioning. I would, I would say, yeah, most people would assume Everest would be your most difficult. But then I said, let me let, me let you answer that because it may not be. And it turns out that Denali uh, up there in the Alaskan range is certainly 
uh, a challenge for you. Now, on the other side of that question, what was your easiest summit? Oh, that's that's easy. It's it's the one in Australia. Um, I had some friends down there, and when I was living up in Summit County in Colorado near a ski resort, my house was higher than the mountain. <laughs> okay, so what are we talking in elevation then? I mean, for the Australian summit. I, I think it was like 7,800 feet. I, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I literally went up there in shorts and flip-flops. Okay, but it's still 7,800 feet. So for the, the average person, that's still a challenge. I'll tell a little brief story here. One of the things my wife and I did recently because of the coronavirus, we, you know, we just wanted to get out. So there's a granite outcropping here in Georgia called Stone Mountain. And so we decided to trek up Stone Mountain, which I think is all 1,600 feet. And so we got to this sort of final, I guess, summit incline there. And we were like, oh, gosh. And so I'm thinking, yeah, someone that climbs Mount Everest or Mount McKinley or something like that, it probably would be laughing at this. But no, I can understand what you said. So certainly different weather in Australia. I mean, you're saying, you know, what, what geographically, where is that particular peak or summit located? I'm not familiar with it. So I kind of describe, um, you know, Australia kind of looks like a pancake. Um, if you go down towards uh, Melbourne and you go northwest, that's where it is. Okay. All right. So is it kind of in the interior or along the coast? It's, well, it's not really too close to the coast. It's okay. near a, a quote-unquote ski resort called Threadbow. Yeah, okay. I think I know the area. I know exactly okay. where you're from. I'm just trying to get my own GR so I can sort of paint a picture for our listeners out there because I think most of the interior of Australia, to my, my knowledge, is relatively flat and outback territory. So I, I know most of the relief is either near the coast or somewhat inland of the coast somewhat, so that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. All right. So now, I guess in terms of the African continent, it was a Kilimanjaro. Is that the, the highest peak? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Kilimanjaro. Good. And I, um, I, um, in one of my classes at the university of Georgia, I often show images of Kilimanjaro that have ice on them or, or glacier or activity. And I show that to make the point because Kilimanjaro itself is near the equator. And so people think of the equator as being warm, but I, I use it to show that temperature is a function of elevation. This is a basic meteorology lesson for all you weather geeks out there. There are various things that, uh, what was your experience and time frame like when you climbed that mountain? Well, believe it or not, I'm, I'm gonna throw this out there. I've been up Kilimanjaro now 18 times. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. I, I, I take a group up every year as a fundraiser for a cancer charity. Oh, wow. And unfortunately, we're not, we're not going this year, but we do it every, every summer. Um, so you, sh you should go with us next oh, year. Well, hey, yeah, I may have to put that on the calendar. Yeah, you, you can experience the temperature gradient itself because we start at, a, uh, uh, at an African rainforest and we go through four or five different climactic zones to get yeah. to the top. And you're literally 200 miles south of the equator standing on snow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the students for like an intro weather and climate class at the University of Georgia, when I show those images of snow, nearly almost at the equator um it kind of blows their mind until you teach them why that's happening so it's, yeah yeah I, that'd be a really interesting sort of uh, sort of lesson on lapse rates which is something we talk about in meteorology now i i'm curious since we're we're going around let's just do this what, what what's the summit in europe um that's called elbrus and it's right between the black and caspian seas and the Caucasus mountains in russia okay. right, right on the border of russia and georgia Nice. Okay. And South America? Aconcagua. 
I can five times fast. Yeah, can, <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, and what country is that? Is that Chile or? It's, it's on the border of Chile and Argentina. And if you ever go down there, you will have the best bottle of Malbec and the well, best Malbec. you'll ever have. <laughs> well, I, I love the Argentine Malbecs anyhow. So I definitely exactly. want to keep that in mind. So I know that's a great one. And, and then obviously you talk about uh, North America and, and Asia obviously would be Mount Everest. Right. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Let's shift gears now, sort of move from mountain trekking to triathlons. Uh, I think we better, okay, I, I thought I lost you for a second, but I think you're still there. Triathlons in Hawaii. All right. So first of all, because everyone that listens to the show may not be familiar, tell everyone what a triathlon is and then what is so compelling or interesting or provocative or difficult about one in Hawaii. Well, a triathlon is, is a series of three different things. You start off swimming, you, then you go biking, and then you, you finish with the running. And kind of setting it up, it used, they used to, I don't know if you know this either, but they used to finish with the swimming. And a lot of people would end up getting cramps and, and drowning, so they changed the order a little bit. This was years and years ago. You know, common sense kicks in there. But there are different lengths of the triathlon. You know, and I don't, I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but I know there's a sprint, there's an Olympic, there's a half Ironman, and then there's an Ironman. And then you have the World Championship Ironman Triathlon. And the Ironman distance, you swim 2.4 miles, you bike 112, and you finish with a marathon. So it's a very intense competition. So it's the World Championship. And the year I did it, it was the hottest and windiest on record. Yeah. But it's still, it's just like everything in life. It, it It was... it was a life experience and it was something that I, I look back on now and I'm so happy I did it. And anything about those conditions though, that hampered or helped help you in the competition or in the, the feet? I would say what helped me were the Hills. Cause you know, it was, it was on the, the big Island in Hawaii and I trained in Colorado. What hindered me, what really got me was the heat. You know, I couldn't train for that. And, and without getting too descriptive, I, I ended up drinking 11 throughout the whole competition. I finished in about 11 and a half hours. I went through 11 gallons of fluid and I went to the bathroom three times. Wow. Now, is that heat, you know, you know I always, you know, laugh and chuckle because we talk about heat and humidity and the combination of those two, the heat index or what we technically call the apparent temperature. And you always have these people, oh yeah, Las Vegas is 110, but it's a dry heat. It's not that bad compared to those of us here in the South who are used to maybe 80s and 90s, but brutal humidity. What, what was the humidity like there? It was pretty humid, but the, uh, the wind that kept, kept blowing off the ocean was was amazing and like like i said it was the windiest on record as well um the the turnaround spot on the bike section is called a little town called javi and it's at the top of this long hill and every year my 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 trainer was telling me that you go up the hill and then you'll turn around and if you don't get it right the wind shifts so i had a headwind going up the mountain and i had a headwind coming down the mountain The, the wind was blowing in my face the whole time wow now, you know, it's just amazing as I'm sitting here listening to you, I'm talking with Sean Swarner, who, you know, I've, I've known about him, but really, as I was reading up in, on him, it became so impressed and just an honor to speak with you today here on Weather Geeks. Uh, do you have a preference in terms of these sort of grueling physical activities? Would you rather sort of have a preference for cooler, sort of drier conditions or hot, humid conditions or really does it matter to you? You know, it, it really doesn't matter. I just, I, I, I don't like rain. 
Maybe that, that's it. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Have you ever been in? Have you ever been in any situations, either climbing, skiing, uh, running triathlons, or, or running part of a triathlon? I should say where rain was a problem for you. The the first time I went up Kilimanjaro, it was raining so much in the jungle. We were going through knee deep mud. Wow. And that I, I just don't like being wet. You know, because when you're wet, you get cold, and it, and it soaks you to the bone and because it's so warm in the, in the jungle, what happens is you're wet on the outside and you're wet on the inside because your clothes are soaking wet because you're sweating and you're getting wet no matter what type of, of material you have on the, as a shell, it's still going to get in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, you know, one of the things is that, you know, the wetness and even sometimes it doesn't even have to be wet. If you're sweating and it's just really humid, uh, the sweat from our skin doesn't evaporate very well. And that evaporation is meant to cool us. It's an evaporation is a cooling process. So, yeah, I appreciate what you're saying, but it's really interesting because, again, reminder to those listeners, Kilimanjaro there is in the tropics. It's, a, it's near the equator. It's in what we call the inter or near, depending on the time of year, near the intertropical convergent zone. If you ever look at a satellite, weather satellite image, global one, go and do this. This is your challenge from Weather Geeks for today. Go pull up a global satellite image and you'll see a band of clouds uh, around and near the equator in the tropics just about all of the time. It's called the intertropical convergent zone. It's where the trade winds from the northern and southern hemispheres uh, converge. And so that's certainly probably some of the things that you're experiencing there in that moment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we are back on Weather Geeks podcast. And hey, this is the first podcast that we've taped since the coronavirus pandemic. So glad you're all hanging in there with us. Uh, hope you're all staying safe. Uh, we're figuring out our new way to do this. So hopefully you as Weather Geeks listeners will kind of bear with us as we're figuring out this new world of Zoom and video conferencing and whatnot. And we appreciate Sean Swarner for being our sort of inaugural guest here on this sort of post coronavirus edition of Weather Geeks. Now, Sean, you actually have authored several books. The latest is a seven-part ebook called Seven Summits to Success. Tell us about this book series and where people can find it. Oh, the, the, the first one is called Everest Being Unstoppable. And I think that's that's probably one of the better ones because it really dives into the reasons people people can succeed. You know, it goes back to the whole, um, I, I think it was maybe Abe Lincoln or, or um, for Henry Ford who said, whether you think you can or you can't, you're absolutely right. And it's that idea and the mentality of going into any situation, whether you think it's possible or not, you're, you're going to help create your success or you're going to hold yourself back. So depending on the perspective that you have, and one of the greatest freedoms we have in life is the freedom of choice. So we can choose whatever, whatever perspective we want. Um, and, and Everest being unstoppable really guides people into starting at the end, putting an emotional attachment on that end result, that way living like their future selves are in the present. Because if, if you have a goal in the future and you want to accomplish that, the reason you haven't accomplished that yet is because there's something that's holding you back. And it's usually yourself. 
And there's something different about the quote unquote future you that's not who you are now because you don't have what you want. Right. And I'm not talking about the house. I'm not talking about the car. I'm not talking about the money because that stuff's not going to make you happy. You know, shiny things get tarnished over time. I'm talking about your personal core values that help you get something. So in the future, maybe you're more confident. Maybe you're more giving. Maybe you're more um, self-reliant. Whatever that might be, that's what people need to focus on. Right. And so are you going to, based on the title, Seven Summits to Success, are you then going to walk us through the different summits? Does that make sense? You started with Everest, or is that just kind of a, a hook there with the title? No, you're absolutely right. So the first one was Everest. The second one was Kilimanjaro, then Elbrus. And then okay. I, the books actually continue in the series. And I, I realized that giving a, I was giving a keynote talk. Um, I want to say to, I forget the name of the company, but and I don't, maybe I don't want to say it, but it was a large Fortune 500 company. I was up on stage talking about reaching the summit of Everest with one lung, you know, literally redefining what people once thought was physiologically impossible. Right. And then I realized no one in the audience can understand what that feels like. Right. Right. <laughs> well, for two reasons. Most people probably have both lungs and most people haven't been on Everest. Exactly. <laughs> so then I realized, you know, to make it relatable, reflect back to an earlier time in my life. Everyone can relate to cancer, you know, because it's, it's, it seems like it's a global epidemic now. I'm sure you know someone touched by oh, cancer. I'm sure everybody does. And there are lessons that I learned on uh, through life in college, you know, my, my, my cancer treatments, whatever it might be, just going through life, I've learned these lessons. And something happened on every one of those mountains of the seven summits that made me reflect back to an earlier period in my life to help me get through that situation on the mountain. So it's, it's a series of stories, but in those stories are embedded life lessons that help people become stronger and stronger by making micro changes as opposed to trying to change everything all at once. Just start with one little thing. That's all it takes and make that one little thing a habit and then move forward onto the next. And you just made me think about something as we talk about just mountaineering and the challenges associated with climbing an Everest or a Denali. And obviously the weather elements, the, the lack of oxygen, and yet one lung. <laughs> You're dealing with, I mean, talk about just from base camp at an Everest to the summit. I mean, the difference is not only just temperature, but in oxygen levels. Oh, I mean, in, in oxygen levels, if, if we went from here, you know, say you and I met, we both left our homes and we met on the summit of Everest because of the, the lack of oxygen. We would be dead within five minutes. Wow. Wow. Unbelievable. And yet you you're, you're climbing with special equipment, but do some of the guys, the Sherpa guys, they don't, do they use some of this equipment? I've, I've read stories about them. I mean, maybe they do. But, I mean, I've read that some in the past they did. They, they are incredible people. The, the Sherpas over there um, are unbelievable. They're, they're high altitude guides and, in all honesty, it wouldn't be possible to climb the mountain without them. Um, they're, local, they're a group of, of local indigenous people from Nepal and the Himalayas, and people have done some research on them, and a lot of people think that they're genetically different. But what happens is when you spend a certain amount of time in altitude, your body, believe it or not, starts to grow capillaries to make it more efficient. And your body also in altitude starts producing more red, red blood cells and hemoglobin, to become more efficient in altitude. So technically, because I've spent so much time in altitude, I have more capillaries in my body than you guys do. Right. And most people down, you know, at sea level. And the Sherpas, because they've lived their entire lives up there, are much more efficient in altitude, which makes them just unbelievably strong. 
Now, just you, you spent your time in, in nature and the environment and on mountains and at the poles. Uh, just over the years, I mean, again, this is not a discussion about climate or climate change in this discussion, but have you seen any changes in your time just as you've been going up Kilimanjaro or going to the poles or different places? I absolutely. Um, the best one is Kilimanjaro. You know, I've, it's like I said, I've, I've been up there 18 times. And on the crater rim going to the summit, there's a spot where I always stop and take a picture. And it started with my first, my first summit going across the crater rim. There used to be in the distance, a few miles away, one giant glacier. Now it's three or four little tiny glaciers. They're, they're, you, you might love this term. They're sublimating. Sublimate, yeah. absolutely. We know that term in weather. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're, they're literally disappearing. Yes. And so for those listeners out there, sublimation is the process you, we know about. I think most people are familiar with evaporation and condensation. Sublimation is the process by which ice goes directly to the gas phase. It skips the liquid phase. And by the opposite of that is deposition, where the water vapor goes to ice. So you're seeing these sublimated. My family and I went out to Glacier National Park a couple of summers ago and just basically glaciers disappearing there as well. So I, I suspected you might've had that experience. We're, we're getting close to wrapping this up. Got a few more, a couple more questions. Um, one of the producers wanted me to ask you this question. I'm going to read it verbatim. Uh, shout out to Sarah Dillingham, by the way, who um, is the producer extraordinaire, I think for this particular episode, her and Heather Zahn's doing some great work with Weather Geeks. After experiencing all of this, in what climate would you eventually want to retire and settle down? Wow, I, that as soon as you hit retire, I was like, "Who wants to do that?" I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I have such a, a long life. I don't know if I'll ever retire because I'm always going to be pushing the limits. Yeah, um, yeah, but so, but no, but I, I see you living in the Colorado area. That that's kind of home base for you. No, no kind of places that you just want to spend some time. If you could just go even for a year. Well, I, I my wife's Puerto Rican. You know, we we met in San Juan. Sure. And uh, I've, I've been in touch with, you know, the producers there numerous times because it, it seems like every time I go to the island with her, there's something that happens. Last time we were there it was the earthquakes. The <laughs> time before that, it was Irma and Maria. So I would love to say Puerto Rico, but I, I think I might have to stay in Colorado just to to save the island from any more trauma. <laughs> yeah, right. This is like, oh, gosh, here comes Sean. Yeah, I've, I've spent some time in uh, Puerto Rico over in, My in Mayaguez, a uh, very interesting part of the island there. There's a little island we went to off of the island where it was just it's just running I mean, iguanas everywhere and uh, all kinds of interesting. And my little two-year-old daughter was trying to pick them up. I just had that experience. But, um, yeah, no, this has really been awesome. Can you let the listeners know where they can follow you on social media or any websites or how they can get in? on that Kilimanjaro trip? Uh, absolutely. It's, it's really simple. Just go to seanswarner.com and it's Sean like Sean Connery. So jokingly, I say the proper way because my, my <laughs> grandfather came from Scotland. Right. Um, Sean Swarner, S-W-A-R-N-E-R, -E like the Warner Brothers with an S on the front. Yes. And what about, you got any Twitter or social media or Instagram sites? Every, everything is Sean Swarner. Uh, everything's Sean. Okay. So yep, super easy. Awesome person to follow. I'm going to be following you, so look out for a follow from me. Thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast today. Before I let you go, though, I've got to read our Geek of the Week because this episode's Geek of the Week is Trisha Barrett. By day, Trisha works as a business analyst, but in her spare time, she serves as a Skywarn spotter. She's also the proud member of the virtual operations support team for the Austin San Antonio National Weather Service. 
For the past four years, she has provided social media support during weather events by searching and relaying local storm reports to the weather service. She enjoys educating her local community about weather, doing her part to keep people safe. Oh, and check this out. She's no stranger to severe weather as her most memorable weather event was the Central Texas tornado outbreak of May 27, 1997, which included the F5 tornado that struck Gerald, Texas. Thank you, Tricia, for your dedication to your local weather community. And you can follow her updates on Twitter at ATXWXGirl. That's at ATXWXGirl. Now, if you or someone you know would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, be sure to check out our social media pages. Sean, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Very grateful to be here. No, that's awesome. And I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we'll catch you next time on this new post-coronavirus version of Weather Geeks. Thank you.